All right. So today's episode is another heavy one. We're talking about assault and speech language pathologist. Our guest, good Lord, y'all know I'm grateful for Kayla. She's been on here a couple times. Her work is profound on so many levels. I've seen firsthand the lives that she has witnessed too. I've had current colleagues come up to me and talk about how impactful her presentations were and their time with her on their individual walks for self-care. But, um, you know, this is, this is a heavy topic assault. So I also have to say that I am grateful for that. Oh, so fun, Mr. Dawson of mine, because as I mentioned to a couple episodes back when I was going through my trauma and I came out on the other side, it was my husband that I met during, I guess, the finding of myself process. And I distinctly remember him dressing up head to toe in his motorcycle gear in the living room of his townhome and teaching me Krav Maga self-defense so that I would be equipped to prevent future encounters because he knew what had happened in my old life. So, Mr. Dawson. I know you know that I'm grateful for you, but I need a copy. Thank you. So, y'all, thank you for celebrating Gratitude 2023 with us. Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional a speech therapy podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina, and I guess lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate by way of a nerdy conversation. So there's plenty of laughter too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields, or as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy joy and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee by way of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com.
Hey, this is Michelle Dawson, and I need to update my disclosure statements. So my non-financial disclosures. I actively volunteer with Feeding Matters, National Foundation of Swallowing Disorders, NFOSD, Dysphagia Outreach Project, DOP. I am a former treasurer with the Council of State Association Presidents, CSAP, a past president of the South Carolina Speech, Language, and Hearing Association, SCISHA, a current board of trustees member with the Communication Disorders Foundation of Virginia, and I am a current member of ASHA, ASHA SIG 13, SCISHA, the Speech, Language, Hearing Association of Virginia, SHAB a member of the National Black Speech-Language Hearing Association in Basla and Dysphasia Research Society, DRS. Additionally, I volunteer with ASHA as the topic chair for the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Planning Committee for the ASHA 2023 convention in Boston, and I hope you make it out there. My financial disclosures include receiving compensation for First Bite Podcast from SpeechTherapyPD.com as well as from additional webinars and for webinars associated with Understanding Dysphagia, which is also a podcast with SpeechTherapyPD.com. And I currently receive a salary from the University of South Carolina in my work as adjunct professor and student services coordinator, and I receive royalties from the sale of my book, Chasing the Swallow Truth, Science and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders, as well as compensation for the CEUs associated with it from speechtherapypd.com. So those are my current disclosure statements. Thanks, guys. The views and opinions expressed in today's podcast do not reflect the organizations associated with the speakers and are their views and opinions solely. Okay, everybody. Today, I'm already tearing up. Today's topic is heavy, but we have to go there. So if you have tiny ears in the room, I mean, most of the time, first bite is tiny ear friendly, but today is not. So please get the little ones out of earshot. And, you know, I I always do my disclaimers when it's a tricky topic. So this could be triggering for you in unexpected ways, but it also, our goal is to make it very healing for you. So... There's our disclaimers. So now I'm going to give you the joyful backstory. Once upon a time, a naive young Michelle Dawson worked as the (laughs) clinic coordinator at Francis Marion University, and she met the most vivacious, empowering woman of God in the Department of Counseling there, and it was Student Services and Counseling. And she was deputy director, I think, Kayla, you were deputy Mm -hmm. director? Yes, deputy director there, is none other than Kayla Duncan. And this license, you're technically a licensed social worker, correct? I was a professional counselor, so I don't do that anymore, but yes. Yes, yes. But that's what she did. And bless if I went to her with a, a heavy heart and expressed concerns that I had grad students that were not set for success. They needed to be empowered and equipped that they deserve to stand on solid ground. And to reach that point, they needed counseling and they needed to know that counseling was available to them. 
And Kayla joined me on that venture. And for several semesters, we collaborated in creating student help and student support for caregivers, right? Because we are caregivers, but how do we empower ourselves to then turn around and empower caregivers? And Kayla's been on the podcast and we've talked about that, but she took on this new role when she left Francis Marion and went to Texas and her, her path went on a amazing journey. And she is now the director of communications and outreach with sexual assault resource center surrounding the greater Texas A&M area. And so here's the deal. I know several friends that have, and colleagues, actual speech language pathologists that have been survivors of sexual assault. I myself am the survivor of physical and verbal domestic abuse, and I carry those traumas with me. They are part of my lived experiences. But so do some of the patients that we serve, so do our coworkers. And some of us, so do ourselves. So we're going to kind of cover a lot of ground today. And we have Kayla and her joyful self to lead us on this. So hi, thank you so much for coming back. Hi, no problem. Thank you for having me. That was such a sweet intro. <laughs> this is, when, when I told the girls, I was like, so we're going to do an episode on sexual assault. And they're like, so we do pediatric speech therapy. I was like, trust me, this has a place and it's important. <laughs> so like, tell us, how have you been? Take us from the top. You've had quite the adventure down in Texas. And is it hotter than Hades already? It, to me, usually Texas is, is, is usually hot. But right now it feels like home. So it feels like South Carolina right now. So it's, it's very humid, more so than okay. normal. So everybody's like, it's so humid outside. I'm like, eh, it feels like home. <laughs> so, I'm like, I'm used to it. I'm like, man, it just feels like a South Carolina morning where it's like sticky and you're like, don't know how to, you know, uh, what to do with yourself. Yes. But yeah, I've been on a journey. So I've been in Texas. November would be almost two years now. I live in Bryan College Station, so home of Texas A&M. That actually was why I moved to Texas. I took a job at Texas A&M actually doing student conduct work. I was an investigator, so I was a person that you came and talked to when you were not following the rules or if you're an Aggie, uh, the core values and different things like that. And then, you know, serendipitously, this job came open and a friend of mine was like, Hey, like, I know you don't counsel anymore, but I know, you know, you still use your skills and different things like that. I think you'll be perfect for this job. And so I interviewed, fell in love with the position, fell in love with the staff. We do amazing work here. We provide free and confidential services for all sexual assault survivors, ages 13 and up. We do that through individual group counseling, which is unlimited. We also do advocacy services. We have a 24 hour crisis hotline. We offer, offer hospital court and police accompaniment for survivors. So we also serve as secondary survivors. So family members, friends, all of that kind of stuff, spouses or partners. And then my department, we go out and we get to do community trainings to raise awareness, education, go to schools, go to churches, businesses, different things like that, talking about what sexual violence is, what does that look like? How do we prevent it? You know, how do we talk about it? So it's been a journey, but it's been a, a, a really cool journey. So it's like, I still, I don't do, I do some direct client stuff because we, I still will go out and I will go out on accompaniments and do stuff too. So I'm not totally removed from that, but I don't counsel anymore, but it's still 
nice to be involved in making an impact in the in the world and and helping people that need our help. So I'm excited about the the transition. Of course, I, I will always miss Francis Marion. I will always be home because that's where I went twice. I still miss like some of the like working with you and other people that I get that I got to meet there. I was actually talking to my old director the other day we were texting. So I still get to keep in touch with everyone. But it's been it's been a journey, but it's been a good journey. Yes. This is so as you're talking, I'm and talking about the different places that you go and what I've seen on the news coming out of Texas, like it's really triggering. Like, damn. <laughs> like they're gonna I know they're gonna edit that out, but like whew. I have so very many questions. One, my first thought is, as a mom of males, as a mom of white males, my first go-to is, if I say no, a lady only has to say no one time in all aspects of her life. And I have been saying that to my children since they were like two and three. And they they don't know what I'm prepping them for, but if... Mommy says no. How many times does mommy need to say no? Once. How many times does any lady, anybody need to say no? Once. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Sorry. They like mm-hmm. echoed that back. But like mm-hmm. that is, but you know what? That's a conversation that we're having in our household now and have been having for years because of the assault and the violence that mommy endured and mommy's friends have endured. And mm-hmm. which Sometimes I think we're better on our healing path. And sometimes I'm like, nope, I am not. (laughs) Well, that's the thing. You know, I always talk about healing journeys are more like a road. They're not straight. They have, they can be straight for a period of time and be curvy one, you know, one day. And that's the beauty of healing is that it's never completely done because we grow as people. We have different things that come up. You became a mom, different things like that happen and they're going to grow. And then there'll be different things that come up when they grow, Um, you know, with our relationships, they have twists and turns. So that also affects our healing journey. And so I think just being organic and and being mindful like you are that that journey is continuous. And I think that's something that we always try to make sure people know that it's not finite, that the journey is always going to be continuous. There might be a time where you're like, hey, I'm going to be in therapy right now. But then that could change a month from now. And you're like, hey, I, I might want to go back and start back sessions or relook at what I might need to do with myself so that I'm filling my cup and, and have what I need as a person um, to function the way that I need. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So wearing the hats that I wear now, and folks, if you are in the role of a clinical supervisor as a director within your graduate department or undergraduate department, I am specifically speaking to you, especially if you're involved with your NISHLA, the National Student Speech Language Hearing Association. There are opportunities within your programs to empower and equip our students and future colleagues to know about signs and symptoms of sexual assault, sexual abuse, and abuse, and to empower and prevent 
and Nishla chapter meetings, new student orientation, those are really good opportunities to set these up, right? So if we were talking to our faculty and our professors and our supervisors, how would those trainings, what would they look like and what topics would be covered in there? One thing I'll always advocate for, um, no matter where you are, because I know our listeners could be all over, is check with your community resources in your area that you serve. I think that's super important. You want to be plugged in because there might be a place similar to what we do. There should be. It might cover several counties, but finding out what you know, if you have a rape crisis center in your area or somewhere near there that covers that, a lot of times you will see that it will be domestic violence and sexual assault crisis centers that will be together. We're one of eight in Texas that are solely sexual assault crisis centers. So it could be either or. So just looking that up, if you want a list of that, you can always go to the rain.org site to look those up as well. What was this site? Rain, so R-I-N-N dot org, they'll have like a list of different areas like all over the country and like resource centers that might be near where you live. You can put in your, your zip code, that kind of stuff. And a lot of our you know resource centers like us will have outreach teams that can come out and provide the training for free and different things like that. And a lot of times you do have state overhead as well. So like here in Texas, we have what's called TASA. So they kind of like are an overarching branch for all of the centers. And so they provide like online trainings and different things like that too for people. So the state sometimes will have some of those kind of overheading things to look at. But overall, the trainings can look different. I know for us, we have a a bevy of different things that we offer. The basic one that we offer is just one about our services, like who we are, what we do, how to get plugged in with us. We'll do that. One of the more in-depth ones that I really love to do for businesses is like sexual harassment, talking about what that looks like. And then also for a lot of student organizations or like professionals also talking about, we call it sexual violence one-on-one, other places might call it something different, but just going into what is sexual violence? What does it mean to be a bystander? What are bystander interventions that can, you know, those red flags or different things like that? What do you do when someone does disclose to you? And like, how does that whole process look like? What is rape culture? How does that play a role in what we look at and what as a human race, like especially in nationally, internationally, how we look at sexual assault and why that matters and how the conversations we have with people we love or care about or just regular conversations can add to that and how we can be in those conversations and advocate for survivors versus victim blaming or shaming, different things like that. So it doesn't have to be something huge. It can be a small intervention. So we train on different things like that as well as just overall healthy, unhealthy relationships, online safety, different things like that, that impact people in some way. So just really equipping people to know what's going on and that even if you serve pediatrics or different things like that, you have colleagues, you have parents, you have different people like that, that it's happening and so or has happened and it might not be healed or they might be way more protective of their child than you're, than you're thinking that feels normal or different things like that. But it might be because they're a survivor and they've never told anybody or they've never healed that. And so allowing yourself to walk through the world and say, hey, 
this this has happened to people. People are survivors. Usually we say one one in 33 men and one in six women. Sorry, one in four women nationally. And that's reported and it's highly underreported, right? And so we want to make sure that when we're walking through the world, there typically is a survivor in the room with you. Yes. And so how we speak and how we talk and the communication we have is important. So we always want to be survivor-centric and trauma-informed. Yes. And we are, under our licenses and our certifications, mandatory reporters. And what I have found is that you know when the hair on the back of your neck stands up and it doesn't feel right? Mm-hmm. I would say the hair on my arms, but I shave them. So like let they it's I really do. I have like this color, it's like thick. I it's it, I it's as much hair as our Wookiee. And so I shave them, but otherwise it would stand up. Anyways, oh I said Wookiee, he has passed. I will go just. But when I feel that sensation creeping crawling. Normally, my gut instincts that there is trauma in the home is correct. Mm-hmm. And what I have found is that if we're in a safe space and I share about my walk or if it comes up organically, naturally, and authentically, the caregivers will in turn share what's going on. And I mean, we had a little one I served years ago that had hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy HIE, and the physicians couldn't figure out why the baby was born with HIE because there was no birth trauma. And they just couldn't figure it out. And mom shared that she was thrown down a flight of the stairs near the end of her pregnancy. It was very traumatic, but we created a safe space for her to share her story, which then in turn as a mandatory reporter, even though it wasn't, the assault wasn't directed at the child, the assault was directed at the mother. Mm. I'm still obligated to tell the team, to tell the physician, because that individual was still in the home and in the picture, and we all need safety awareness, and, mm-hmm. and that trickles over. I mean, you know, we did all the necessary reporting as was legally indicated, but there it is. But Okay, backtrack. We made the mistake of letting the boys watch Nine to Five with Dolly Parton because she's phenomenal. She is okay, <laughs> but that is, a, is that, but that no. movie is was groundbreaking, and I think still is about what it talks yes. about. Yes, yes, and it, okay. One, there's a couple of scenes in there that, in retrospect, I was like, "Ooh," and the boys were like, "Those are drugs, and those are bad," and I was like, "Yeah." <laughs> Go. I was like, like it was just, the 80s. Dolly Parton. <laughs> I'm like, just focus on Dolly. But yes. So women empowerment in our house is really big. But there are certain things that were said and done that my children picked up on. And they were like, mom, you can't say that to a lady. Mom, you cannot say that. And I'm like, accurate information. So could we tiptoe through what the first part of your your statement was when you talked about you do in-services for like on-the-site jobs, job training, because mm-hmm. having awareness about what some of those comments are when we're working in the workforce, but also when we send students out into the workforce, what should what are our red flags there? I always say, we usually look at 
uh, sexual violence, like on a pyramid, when we talk about rape culture, different things like that. So the bottom level that we typically look at first is like degradation. And so that's like locker room talk that is boys will be boys. Or Mm. why was she wearing that? Or why was she out that time of night? Or why did she drink? Or why? I mean, I mean, he's a nice guy. He wouldn't do anything like that. Like he comes from a good family. So I think I always tell people we've all been in conversations where things like that have been said. And I always Mm -hmm. go back to this really cool video that we talk about. It's called James is Dead. And so you can YouTube it, look at it. But I love it because it talks about sexual assault, but through the lens of if the person was murdered. So, and okay. and I know that, it, but when you watch it, it's kind of comical. So it's okay if you laugh a little bit, but basically, to, <laughs> I mean, it is, it's like a cartoon. So basically there's this friend who comes up to this other friend and it's like, Hey man, did you hear about James? And the person's like, yeah, you know, James died. Isn't that so sad? And the person's like, yeah, but he kind of like, I mean, he kind of acts for it and like goes down this whole thing. Exactly how we talk about assault, right? Not how we talk about murder. We don't talk about murder survivors, murder victims in that way, or attempted murder survivors in that way, right? But when we talk about sexual assault, people automatically ask what we call the why questions, which is against trauma-informed, right? Which is, why were they there? Did they know that person? Why did they wear these things? Or you know that that person that they're saying did that? I've known them for three years. They'd never do anything like that. Or they're so nice. They were a straight A student. They would never do this. Yes, but that we've all heard this. Yes. So we've all those heard this types of comments, or even like in the workplace, being aware of kind of language and how people are expressing themselves amongst amongst each other. There's nothing wrong with being close with your colleagues or different things like that. But one thing I'll always go back to, this is always going to be a conversation. And I love that you're having it with your boys early is consent, right? Consent does not just have to be when we talk about sexuality or sex or different things like that. It can be for, it can be digital consent. I talk about that a lot online. Are you asking your friends if it's okay for you to take a photo of them if you're together and post it on Facebook and post it um, or tag them because everybody's not comfortable with that? You don't know. Somebody might be in the witness protection program. You don't know, like that kind of thing. And you're like, don't. (laughs) And they're like, why are you posting it? You know, that kind of thing. Or with consent, like with children, I always talk about, you know, growing up, like just because I'm Southern and I'm pretty sure you can attest to it. I grew up like with my you know, family members like, oh, give that person a hug. They know you since you're a baby or, you know, I loved both my grandmas to death and I would give them all the sugar I could ever give, but they didn't necessarily act. It was just like, we're going to hug. I'm going to kiss your cheeks. And like, that's just how we greet each other. But there was never consent acts or given as far as like physical touch. And so being aware of that. Yes. Okay. So with folks, when we force hand over hand access on a child for touching a communication device, or we take their hands and force them to implement a strategy, whether that be a fine motor task, selection of an object or an action, that negates their ability for consent. We are training them that they do not have the ability to tell an adult or a person in a position of authority, no. So stop. I know all of us 
that went to grad school more than five years ago were trained probably on campus to do hand over hand with children on activities and tasks, especially children that have increased levels of physical need, but we were taking away their consent. So that, and the assault statistics within the disabled community are higher. Sorry, you no, you complete. I mean, it's completely true because a lot of times we've conditioned whether someone is disabled or not, or handicapped or not. We sometimes have conditioned children to not feel that they can give consent to touch, yes, or to even maybe, like we said, photographs. How many people now? you know, might photograph people or like different things like that and not ask consent for that. Or I even talk about consent being nonverbal, especially when we talk about assault or different things like that. And just generally, like if I'm naturally uncomfortable and I don't verbalize that I say no, I always tell people, if it's not a hell yes, it's a hell no. Meaning if I am not Mm -hmm. giving you fully informed, open communication, whether that's verbal or nonverbal, fully informed, some type of expressed thing saying, I am down for whatever we're doing. I am not consenting. So that means I can turn rigid. I might start, you know, having palpitations or like seem sweaty or seem very anxious or nervous. I'm probably, I'm not consenting. So as a person, mm-hmm. we need to talk more and not even just males, but also like anybody, any human about when we're interacting with other people, knowing nonverbal signs and cues, as well as verbal cues, when we talk about consents and boundaries and knowing that what our boundaries are and learning how to communicate that is so important, but also what boundaries are. Because unfortunately, a lot of us are not taught that or might have a different type of boundary with someone. I always talk about like with kids and their bubbles, right? And adults, we have our own bubble, right? You have your personal space bubble yeah. where you're like, don't come past this this amount or I feel like I'm going to have to like react, right? We all have that. But my bubble atmosphere might be way longer than yours. Yours might mm-hmm. be very short. So you might be like, I can come talk to you and be like right here. And like, that's fine. Cause that's comfortable for you, but that might not be comfortable for me. And so vocalize and say, Hey, like, is it okay if I like approach you a little closer? I wanted to tell you something that's a little bit more private or like just having those communication mm-hmm. things or cues that we have. And just noticing that in every interaction, consent and boundaries are always going to be fluid. They're always going to change. Somebody right then could be like, you know what? I'm okay with what's happening. But five seconds later and be like, you know what? I'm not okay with that anymore. I don't want to be in it. Mm-hmm. And we should respect that. And so I always go back with those cues. When we talk about professional or being observing uh, families or different things like that and seeing the dynamic of how consent and boundaries play a role, because those are always going to be underlying things that sometimes play a role. And then subconsciously the rape culture kind of thing that we have nationally and internationally kind of what weaves into that as well with those boy room, locker room things or statements, or sometimes it comes from religiosity, different things like that as well, which all come from the arc of rape culture. And so trying to break those barriers down and changing or reframing those conversations instead of engaging with them or saying silent, because when you stay yes. silent, you're saying that you agree. Yes. I just think back to your bubble and the boundaries. 
and how the bubble and boundaries can be different between different individuals. And that's something that when we're observing interactions in family members or myself personally, I'm a hugger. So my love language is touch. This is how I give. This is how I receive. So Southern, right? Like I was, you know, go hug this person, go Mm -hmm. did it. But like, that's my love language. But as I matured, I realized that it wasn't appropriate for me to go and hug some of the unknown males that my family members would like introduce me to because it made me uncomfortable. I didn't like how they looked at me, those kind of things. Mm -hmm. Right. But that's something that it's okay to have different bubbles with different individuals. Yes. And saying that that's okay. I mean, I might be a close talker with my, you know, one of my girlfriend, Aaron, but uh, Aaron, I love her. She, she's not, she's not a hugger unless it's with my boys. She, she will give them bear hugs. But like, if I go to hug her, it's like a pack. Yeah. And I, to Aaron, I know you're listening. I'm teasing you, but like, that's fine to have those. Like she's, she goes, it's cause I'm from Rochester. <laughs> but you're right. Yeah. That's, it's that. It's Aaron, you can't see it, but we're teasing you about your little side hugs. <laughs> but yes. Ah. Oh. Yeah. And I think just respecting that, I think you made a really good comment of maturity and that also remembering to step outside of yourself in those interactions and know that it's not only when we're interacting with other people, yes, we're thinking about what we need, but also we need to make sure that we're thinking about what that other person might need. And sometimes if you're really not Mm -hmm. sure, it's okay to ask that. Be like, hey, is it okay if I sit at this chair that's closer to you? Or would you like me to sit across from you? Mm -hmm. Like, even like we're Mm -hmm. at a restaurant, right? Like, if I'm going with like my Mm -hmm. mom, like sometimes I'll just sit beside her. Like, because that's just how we are. Like, that kind of thing. But like with friends or whatever, Mm -hmm. like there's friends that will will sit side by side, you know, and that's just how we are. We always have been that way. And we have that understanding. But there might be a day that I'm like, hey, would you mind just sitting across from me today? Like, I just would like a little bit more physical space just for me. But it's okay to communicate that. It doesn't mean someone's not going to like you. It doesn't mean that that's mean. Asserting your boundaries and asserting what's comfortable for you is so important. I think we want to give, especially, I'm going to speak from a feminine identity lens, especially with that feminine identity or female identified identity. Sometimes we are conditioned that it's not okay to speak up with what we need or what what makes us feel safe or different things like that because that might cause friction or we need to think about everybody else and not us. And so I'm giving you permission as a person, uh, whether you're female identified or not, but to say, hey, you know, what are my boundaries on that? What are my boundaries on on touch, on, you know, even sexually, time, financially, or just these things that sometimes we don't really give certain thought to until we're in the moment, but sometimes giving us our ourselves permission prior to that, or even in the workplace. I think a good example is, you know, I'm an elder millennial, so I, I like my social medias, but you know, it's still a boundary. I would say social media boundary, digital boundaries, right? It's still a boundary for me that I don't necessarily, you know, send out friend requests to everybody I've ever worked with. Or accept that for everybody I've ever worked with because 
I might not feel a closeness to them for them to see that private side of my life. Right. And so, and then we go into like, you know, uh, different career things like boundaries within supervisor or supervisee, or like if you're teaching and like what your boundaries are for that, some people might feel differently and like be friends with their people they teach and different things like that. Other people are like, that's a personal boundary for me. But just thinking about through those things, I think sometimes because sometimes people take those very personally and it just might be a personal boundary for that person that this is this is a separate thing for me, like work life, personal life or different things like that. And so I don't know why I thought about that, but that's just something that sometimes I think pops up, especially when we're talking about professionalism or thinking about your workplace boundaries or like even lunch. Like if you're in an office area and you're like, I kind of prefer to eat by myself. It doesn't mean that you're... <laughs> It doesn't mean that you're rude or anything. Like, it's okay for you to climb and say, I don't want to go to the potluck or like, or I don't want to go out to lunch. Yes. That's okay. That's a boundary. And it's also okay if you change your mind one day and you're like, hey, yeah, I'd love to go out to, you know, Olive Garden with you guys for lunch for an hour or whatever and do what you need to do. That's fine. Because I mean, listen, unlimited breadsticks is all I'm saying. But I, you said Olive Garden and I'm thinking, I don't know the last, I do know the last time we went to an Olive Garden, my grandma passed. Because she loved Olive Garden. The only time we went to Olive Garden was... Unlimited breadsticks <laughs> is all I'm going to say. You know, especially on lunch, you get that unlimited soup and salad or whatever you might want to do. Just go in there and have your nice little lunch. I will always be an advocate for Olive Garden. But... <laughs> so just like thinking about those things too in the workplace. And then also like you know, touch and all that stuff too. Like, like you were saying with the hugging part, like I'm a hugger as well, but like at work thinking about, is that appropriate or with your clients, right? What's your boundary? Cause yeah. there was, a, you know, for me, there was a boundary, especially when I was counseling with like physical touch with my clients. Right. Because it's like, you know, not only is there a power differential, but also, you know, what is my boundary? What does it say if I'm not asserting that with that person or, or am I helping them with boundaries? And is that a boundary violation for me? If they're, if they feel like they need touch, but I know that's a, a, a boundary for me, different things like that. So just keeping all of that in mind, because all of that plays a role. Because sometimes our intention does not mean harm, but that does not need, mean that we don't cause harm. Yes. Yes. There's so much to unpack here. I mean, I start thinking about, I remember because I am the older millennial, I'm 40 now, 40 fabulous. Ooh, love and it. Botox. Loving it. Love it. Also, I really do love my Botox, but like whatever. <laughs> they, I remember a time and a place when inappropriate emails would get sent through company emails or jokes and they were sexist, they were racist, they were misogynistic and watching, thank you, nine to five, watching that change, but also, okay, there was a social experiment done years ago and I don't remember who did it, but they had a woman walking in an airport mm-hmm. towards her gate or terminal or whatever it's called. And then they also did it on, on a sidewalk. And what they found is that men simply would not move out of the woman's way. The 
individual that identified as female. They anticipate and expect the female to move. And I've talked to our children about this because we lived in downtown Cola Town mm-hmm. and, you know, we're always out on the sidewalk and doing that. And even with my children in tow, and hell, I'm talking like itty bitty wearing one of them, it was expected that I would physically move my body. I read Feminine Mystique at 13, mm-hmm. which is probably not the right age to read Feminine Mystique, or maybe it is the right age to read Feminine Mystique. I'm not quite sure. Uh, and no. So I will slam into them if they don't move for me, especially if my hands are full. Mm-hmm. And and the boys will, they'll say something like, mom, why didn't they move? Can't they see us coming? I mean, especially if we're walking on the right side of the sidewalk and they're on the right, like, come on, people. You, you, you walk see on me. the sidewalk like drive a car. Yes, you can see me. I exist. Like, I exist. Therefore, I am. Right. And we need to be kind. But that is also, in my mind, if you're an individual that's going to purposefully walk into me, and and not move space, that's triggering and alarming for me how you act in other facets of your life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I think that's a good example because that goes back to some of the constructs we have as a society as far as how we, the behaviors we assign or expect from certain people (laughs) gender-wise. Unfortunately, Mm -hmm. we're... There is an expectation like, okay, so if we're saying, let's talk about sex. So if we're talking about a sexual encounter, who typically is responsible for lack of better word, if there, if there's supposed to be some type of like a condom, who's supposed to bring it? The female should have them in, in, in stock. Right. But I don't have a penis. So why should I keep it in stock? Exactly. Right. And so it's like, why should I, why are you looking at me? Like I should have it. Right. Of course I could have other things that are specific for me. Sure. Whatever. But why is it an expectation that if there's going to be something that someone else is responsible for you engaging in sex, safe sex, you know what I mean? Like just either way, it's, it's good to have both everybody have something, but why is it one person's ideal job? Right. Or when we talk about pregnancy or unexpected present pregnancy, one of the things you hear a lot of times is like, well, didn't she know better? Didn't that other person know better too? Yes. It takes two. It takes not Even it still takes two, even if you go and get sperm, that's two people. Yes. It's not one. I can't self make baby and, and do all this stuff. I can't do that. It's so it's always going to be. Two. I am not a worm. Right. I cannot do that. <laughs> so there's always going to be two people. It took two people to have an action and a behavior. And since we're on that note, even also like in marriages or relationships, talking about consent continually needing to be asked, because I don't know why. I mean, I, I know why it's, it's based on the constructs and the different things that we have in society, but there is sometimes this thought that if we are in a partnership, whether that is a relationship, a marriage, all of these different things, that you're mine. So you are to do what I need you to do for me to be fulfilled, which is controlling, not love, right? Red flag. 
that your body is not your own because you're in a partnership. Consent should still be happening in a marriage. It should be fluid. It should be continuously happening. Just because on Tuesday, it's a little video called Tea for Consent. But just because on Tuesday, I offered somebody tea and they wanted it and we had a great time enjoying it, doesn't mean that, that I'm going to offer them on tea on Wednesday and they're also going to want it. I could offer them tea on Wednesday yes. and they say, no, I don't want tea. But then five hours later, they're like, hey, yeah, I'm okay. With, I'm okay with tea. Let's go. Or then I can have tea by myself, right? I don't need somebody else to have tea. But the the whole moral story there is, hey, I should still be asking for this, even if we're in a partnership. I should still be asking this person if they're comfortable with that. I should still be asking this person, is it okay if we try these things? And even if we tried them the last time, I might not want to try them this time, right? Mm-hmm. And safety word violation, we're mm-hmm. talking about that, covert condom removal, how all of those are flags that someone is trying to control a narrative or parts of interpersonal violence behaviors that are not okay, right? Because everybody should be involved and fully informed on what is occurring in the incident or in the interaction. Yes. When I married my ex-husband on our honeymoon, he grabbed me by my ponytail and slammed my face into the cruise wall and said, I own you. You are mine now. Were there violent red flags beforehand? Yes. But never physically directed at me Mm -hmm. and that nature. But as soon as we got married... It was a switch that I didn't see coming. And I have analyzed and analyzed and analyzed where, what did I miss? And I can't, it's, I can't find it. I can't see it. And that's very deeply personal. And that's very, very raw. But I say this because I'm one in four of domestic abuse. And if we don't change the narrative that this happens only to lower socioeconomic status, uneducated minority individuals in heterosexual relationships solely, if we don't change that narrative and stand up and say, no, it happens to all of us, then it's not going to change. Correct. And then I think also um, one thing we talk about too in our trainings is there is no type of perpetrator. There is no one type of abuser. There is not. They are homogeneous. I'm sorry, heterogeneous. They can be anyone, any sex, any race, any socioeconomic status, any, they can be disabled, abled, any of it. It does not matter. And I think as a society, it makes us feel good to try to assess and put a certain type of person in a box and say, well, that person, that mm-hmm. group, that group, they'll, they, mm-hmm. they'll do those things, right? Because it makes us feel better to say, oh, I know. But no. I mean, yes, there are still going to be people in white vans. That, 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 that's not going to go away. There's still going to be people in the Walmart parking lot that'll, that'll try to move mm-hmm. into a van. I mean, that that's just going to happen. But typically, you know, it's just, that's life. But typically when we talk about assaults, about 33% of assaults are always going to be acquaintances or, or former or current intimate partners. Yes. Only about 17.6% are complete strangers. So the whole narrative of stranger danger is gone. That never existed. More than likely, a perpetrator knows you in some sense. 
Isn't that terrifying? It is because what we think like, oh, I know this person inside and out. They would never hurt me. But yeah, like you trust them. But part of building a relationship with someone is having them drop those security flags, right? So sometimes I always say that in relationships, when you're first meeting someone, you're not meeting the real them. You're meeting their representative, right? The I call them the representative. <laughs> That's great. So it's like I love the that. best version of them, right? Like their most prized self. They're telling you all the great things about you, all about them, the best things they've done. They're being the best things you need, and all of those things, right? But the more and more you're with them, those we cannot always have the representative on, right? The mask has to drop yeah. because we have to start yeah. really being ourselves. And so in in our personal violence situations like domestic violence, sexual assault, which can be hand in hand a lot of times because it's about control, yes. is those things start to fall. So whereas before it was, I love bomb you, you know, everything is amazing. And then it goes from your mind, it goes to your mind or it goes to maybe an incident of, you know, I know, I know you usually have taco Tuesdays with your friends, but like this time, can you stay home with me? I'm just, I just really feel like we need to reconnect. It's insidious. It's insidious. It's like a cancer. It's tiny, tiny micro managements that just seep up. And then all of a sudden, you can't go anywhere or do anything without their knowledge, consent, or, okay, we bought this new house. I cannot make this up. We bought our new house. Nice. And found out from our neighbor that they were going through a divorce. Oh found out from our neighbor that the man was a sex addict. Mm-hmm. I mean, purportedly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She goes, you might want to check your house for cameras. Okay. Okay. Why, when we checked the house for cameras, did my husband find a camera and paint it over, thank you, Jesus, because we had the whole house painted, in my closet? Oh. Right? Oh. What the? Oh. This was not in the disclosure when you bought the house because they're supposed to, one, disclose these things, but two, oh my God, what did that family endure? Yeah. What happened behind closed doors? Yeah. You know what I mean? My dad ended up coming and we um, saged and we blessed the house. Okay. Because I, was like, I, was, I was like, that's a lot. Yeah. yeah. And we got the cameras. Like he, Christian handled, my husband handled the cameras. My daddy handled the saging. Okay. But I say this because this was a, older, married, established couple that was residing here and tiny little things. And all of a sudden you're being camera watched, bamboozled to make sure that you're what on your P's and Q's. Yeah. And I mean, and, and I think we forget to talk about voyeurism because that also is a form of control too, right? Whether it's a stranger yes. or whether it's happening in the homes. And I know a lot of people sometimes use the guise of, I want to feel safe in my home, blah, blah, blah. But you also don't need to have a camera in your closet. I can understand having it. Like I have a, a video doorbell camera so I can see who's coming to my door and talk. And I don't have to go to the door until somebody go away. Like <laughs> that kind of thing. But do you need to have 50 million cameras in your house? Like what is that? What is that saying? And also like, like you said, disclosing that. I think those things are so important because what boundaries are you saying in the house that we're existing and what dynamics there? Yes. And, and then I have had students come to me and coworkers come to me and they said, Hey, I'm doing home health therapy. And I saw a blinking red light at me out of a, a bookshelf in like, or a bookcase. 
I think they're filming me with the family. And that's not safe. If you are going into a patient's house to do therapy, to do caregiver coaching, to work with the family, you have to be notified if you're being filmed or if you're on camera. Like that's our right. Mm-hmm. And that's very that's digital consent. Yes. And that's very scary. And it is, you are not required, according to our code of ethics, to go somewhere where you do not feel safe. So it is not patient abandonment. If you find out that you are being filmed and you decline to go back, that is your safety first and foremost. And mm-hmm. also it needs to be relayed over to the ref- whoever sent the referral to you, whether it be a pediatrician or a PCP, but like that, like the team has to know that this situation is occurring because digital consent. Yes. Boy, is it, that's how, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because I should know if you're filming me, if I'm going into your private home, yes, yes that's your home. But I should know, like, like anybody who comes to my house, I always say, Hey, yeah, I have a, you know, a, a video doorbell. Like I don't keep the recording or whatever, but it's just so I know who's at my house or like that kind of thing coming up to the door, but I don't have cameras in the inside. So I just naturally give people that information. But if I did have a camera in as an inside, I would feel inclined to let people know that because that might, somebody might not feel comfortable in the house or they might be like, Hey, I would prefer it if you turn the camera off in the inside while I'm there or something like that. But you should be giving people that fully informed open communication. All of that should be given to them so they can make the informed decision whether or not they want it in coming or space. Yes. Okay. This is funny, but my in-laws have a crazy person that moved in next door to them and they knew that they put cameras on the side of their house. So my mother-in-law was like, we have to be notified when you're filming us because they're like yards jut up together. So they turn on this ridiculous voice. You are now being filmed. And literally every time they open the back door, it goes, you are now being filmed. <laughs> and like, they're like, you need to angle the camera so that it's on your property. And so like, they're my mother-in-law and I, we are sometimes the same woman. And she goes, yeah, she goes, I'm half tempted to go out there and moon them because it'd be on my property. And I'm like, what is the video? Like, yeah, like aiming at your property part because that's what you should do yeah well they think rosie's pooping in their bushes sorry the beagle not my (laughs) mother-in-law yeah Yeah, but like uh sorry we just needed a good rosie poop joke okay continue (laughs) sorry no you're fine but like even stuff like that i think like having the openness feeling empowered enough to have the open conversation of like hey, I feel like my boundaries are being pushed or my limits are being pushed. And then also like just continuously checking in. I think that's really important too. It's like, hey, like I want to kind of check where we are like with certain things. Like if you feel like there was a violation or different things like that, saying that and just being aware of kind of what your boundaries are and what is appropriate for you just as a person when we talk about that. Because at the end of the day, consent and boundaries are always going to be in the conversation when in the overarching conversation with sexual assault, sexual violence, domestic violence, any type of interpersonal based violence that is always going to be in the, in the conversation. And so being aware of that, not only personally, but also being very vigilant and conscious of other people's maybe lack of knowledge of their own (laughs) boundaries or different things like that, or 
asking them to communicate that with you, the, with you, because some people really struggle with communicating how they feel and the things they need. And so sometimes we have to open the door to that being like, Hey, well, what, you know, what, how can I support you in this, in this area? Or how can, you know, what do you need from me right now? Those types of things can really open the door. Just have an open conversation. We call it, you know, just trauma-informed. So being empathetic, accent, open-ended questioning, you know, validating people when they do tell you something really hard or that, hey, I might've been triggered or different things like that, validating that, saying like, thank you for trusting me with that information. You know, I'm so honored that you were able to do that. Like, how can I support you right now? What do you need? And then just knowing your resources. I always will harp that. Know what's in your community. Know what the resources in your community do. There are so many amazing resources in the communities that we live in that people have no idea exist. And there might be someone you know that could truly use that. But if we're not plugged in and know what people do and what these resources are, we can't empower other people to know or go and seek their services, right? And so I just, especially as professionals, I think it's so important for advocacy piece to know what it is in your community for your families, for your, for the pediatric patients that you see, what is there to help them not only with what you guys specialize in, but also like emotionally, you know, you know, possibly financially, all the other parts that you might not do, but wrap around services that we know assist the family in being healthy. Because if the basic needs are not met, they cannot engage with you and what they need for their children. Yes. Maslow's scale of hierarchical need. And if we truly are embracing IDEA part C, if we're serving as the service coordinator on that team. So Kayla, under early intervention, depending on which state an individual could reside in, Mm -hmm. they may be the service coordinator on the child's IFSP team, Mm -hmm. or they could be just the direct service delivery, OTPT or speech. But in numerous states, the service coordinator is also that licensed professional of the SLP, OT or PT. And In that role as service coordinator, we have to know these resources because the primary recipient of those services is actually the caregiver. So we need to know services like a food bank or somebody that's going to help you if you are stressed about electricity or sexual assault, domestic abuse. We have to... So this... So folks, if you're like still struggling with why do I need to know about sexual assault and violence and awareness right here, these are the reasons why this is important to your job. And then also on top of, I'll I'll piggyback on what you just said. These are important because if we don't talk about them, they're still happening. The people you encounter, even if they're not a direct survivor, most of us know someone who was impacted by sexual violence or interpersonal violence based issues yes. in their life at some, to- on some point. And we see the psycholytic kind of occurrence that happens in families. If there is interpersonal violence in the home, whether that's assault or abuse or whether physical, mental or emotional, all of that psycholytic where sometimes typically we see a, people being predisposed to possibly become a perpetrator from seeing those things in the home and then also interrupting community growth or different things like that in the community as well. And so making sure that we're looking not only at 
this as, gosh, this really isn't my job, but it is. This sexual assault and interpersonal violence is not a they thing. It's not an other thing. It's a we thing. Everybody is human. Everybody knows someone, whether you think you do or not, you know someone, whether they have disclosed to you or not, that has been through assault, sexual violence, interpersonal violence, domestic violence, anything like that in that realm. And so it's so important that we're making ourselves be knowledgeable and being aware and educated because if someone comes to you and discloses or you notice that there's some type of like that hair on the back of your neck that stands up with an interaction that's happening in the family, you need to know those red flags because not only are you a reporter, but you're a human. So if you're noticing some things happening and you're like, hey, how do I interject or like what what's happening right now? And like allowing yourself to say, hey, maybe that is a red flag. You know, and then uh, getting continuously trained, like with people like us that come out and do outreach or getting involved nationally or different things like that and things that you see and advocating in your space for that training and continuous knowledge. Because as professionals, we should be continuous and internal learners. So you do not know everything. I don't know everything. I'll never know everything. But guess what? I will always be open to learning. Because I want to make sure that the people that I serve, the people I meet in my life, the people that I meet in the Walmart line, in the parking lot or whatever, that if they have something to say and I see them struggling, I can be like, you know what? Just so you know, I know of this place. You know, I'm just letting you know about it. What you want to do with that information is you. I have no control over that. But I'm going to I'm going to know that I empowered that person to make a choice. Whatever they choose to do is on them. But me being empowered enough to say I know these resources, I know these things happening, and that I know that I can give them. Because what we know is that people are more likely to disclose to someone they feel safe with. And that first disclosure is so important. Because if we do not validate, let them know they're seen, they're heard, and and that we believe them, a lot of survivors will not redisclose or they will hold that and not create a healing journey for themselves because they're not being greeted in a trauma-informed way with the disclosure. So we want to prepare ourselves for those things. And even when it's a child, right? Because sometimes the adult that's sitting in front of you, I I think adults are just children with money, but the adult that are... (laughs) The adult, yeah, we are. We just have money, right? But the adult that's sitting in front of you was once a child. And so I always say we all carry some type of trauma with us. I like to think mine is like Louis Vuitton, nicely suede, light blue, maybe teal, like, you know, has wheels so I can move it really efficiently throughout the relationships that I have, whether that's platonic or romantic or familial, but we all have it and we bring it into every type of relationship that we have. But what is so important in that with our boundaries and education and awareness is not only being mindful of what your triggers are, but also being mindful of how that changes how you interact with other human beings. And really being cognizant of that part of maturity and part of growing is realizing the effect that we do have on other people and that how that's so important for us to stay cognizant of that and take care of ourselves. emotional management, whether that means you go and talk to a therapist, life coach or whatever or both that you might need to help with that, because we need to make sure, especially professionals, that if you are in this caregiving healing journey with this family that you are also going through that healing journey with yourself. 
Because how can you help someone if you're not taking care of yourself too? Yes. <laughs> yes. I got to be honest. You're a part of my healing journey. I don't know if you know that or not. Oh, I don't know that. But you really are. Yes, because you are guiding and instilling, hopefully through me and through our opportunities, what I wish the younger version of me had. And so part of me healing is by being able to pay it forward, Mm -hmm. right? Because I know what I needed, but I didn't at the time know about, right? right? And so by setting our future for success through future generations, I cannot tell you how many young women you have impacted that I personally know that have come to me afterwards and, you know, I'm going to keep their business private because it's in this, it's in the vault, but it is absolutely amazing to see trauma prevented by initial self-care and healing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So for me personally, whenever we get together, on top of talking about now Louis Vuitton baskets, uh, inappropriate jokes, and um, mud masking, I'm a fan of the mud mask because of you, but it is awe-inspiring to watch you do what it is that you do because you just have so much passion. Also, when we were talking about about sex earlier, all I could think about was my mom giving me the greatest advice ever. Technically, she's my stepmom. And she said, honey, you have to love thyself first. And I was like, I don't understand. She goes, give it a little bit of time and you will. (laughs) But you know how many people struggle with that? Because sometimes we're not taught that that's okay or to explore our own self. And that's a boundary too. Right? Yes. Wait, you know, um, who was it? Oh my God, it's going to come back to me. She's she's an, a speech pathologist that focuses on teenage communication devices. Mm-hmm. And she was talking about consent vocabulary on communication devices. Oh my God, I have her in my email. Oh my gosh, y'all would, I have to connect yeah, y'all would because the amount, uh, oh my gosh, the coursework that y'all could put together for differently abled or disabled because person first language, yes. different persons want different language. But uh, she was talking about how we have to empower the choice vocabulary on communication devices because just because they may not be able to speak, they may still like or not like certain touches and request both. And that, my friend, is the role of the speech language pathologist is help in vocabulary selection. Huzzah, love thyself. Exactly. Completely. Like there should be no barrier, no matter like if you said you're differently abled or whatever, everybody should have access to that vocabulary and feel empowered to have that conversation in whatever way they need to. And the barrier shouldn't be a device. It shouldn't be not having the language. We all should be equipping ourselves and the people we love and the people we work with, with that language, that empowerment and overall knowledge of what this looks like when we talk about consent and boundaries and overall sexual violence that sometimes is perpetuated in our society because we don't talk about it. Yes. 
I don't mind talking about the things nobody doesn't want to talk about. I'm glad we get to do it together. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> okay. If somebody is listening right now and they you had one final closeout sentence to sit down, hold their hands or not hold their hands with them and fill their cup, what would you say? First thing I would say is like, would you like me to hold your hands or would you not like me to hold your hands if you're going to make a joke? But, uh, (laughs) or would you like to? So my final takeaway for anybody who's listening is to stay an eternal learner Remind yourself that even if you're like, I don't know how this pertains to me, this is a universal issue, meaning that it universally impacts the family and the children that you work with. So it impacts you. So you need to know what this is, the red flags, how to respond. If you're like, I have no idea how to do that, please look at some national resources. I can share some of those with Michelle as well, footnotes or anything like that, that you guys might need. Um, And also every state has different entities within them to help with those situations. But it's important as humans that we continuously allow ourselves to be educated and that we need to move on this. We have to act. It is no longer the time of sitting back, being silent or not saying anything. It is the time to stand up. And what we talk about now for our campaign here at my center is shattering the silence of sexual assault, period. That is what we're here to do. No matter what you do, who you are, where you live, it is now the time to be in the light with survivors and bring them with us. Okay. My brain is on fire on ideas. October is AAC Awareness Month, the Augmentative Alternative Communication Month. And I am thinking, how can we put joy and evidence into the world to shatter the silence of sexual assault through the use of AAC? Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm, Ma'am. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, wait, what if somebody had love money? Um, my grandma always calls it love money or like a little bit of mad money, like a little money left over at the end of the month. If they want to donate somewhere, where yeah. would you recommend that they make a donation to? The first thing I would say is look at your local and regional communities. There's probably a nonprofit there similar to us that does this type of work. And I would say plug into your community because we need you, whether that even if you don't have love money or mad money, if you have a heart and you're like, I have time to volunteer and donating, that is just as precious as money. So if you can look into that and volunteer opportunities or help share your expertise with that entity, I know they'll be glad to do that. Looking into those regional, local nonprofits around you and really plugging into your community because those are the people that are serving the people that you see directly. And so pouring into um, those nonprofits. Yes. Excellent. Woman, thank you. Thank you. Oh my gosh, Kayla. Yes. Okay. Folks, if you have questions that are follow-up, and I'm sure that you will, please reach out to us, uh, First Bite Podcast on uh, Instagram and First Bite Podcast on the land of the Facebooks. And be sure to reach out to your local community service providers and if you need help, the website that she mentioned earlier was rain, R-A-N-N, as in like noodles, dot org. And then I'll get some additions. So it'll be 
A-I-N-N.org. Oh, I missed it. Oh, thank you. Okay. I was wondering why it was called Rain and Not Ran. Okay. So then um, I'll get some extra websites from you and we'll have them in the um, show notes. Find it on speechtherapypd.com. Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The Alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the Alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies. Bye.